bitches bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erica. And I'm Amy. And if you're wondering where Aaron is, Aaron is in New York watching Hamilton without us. I can't believe it. I mean, isn't this her second time? It's it's a really polite rude not to invite us and bankroll our trip to New York with her. I don't think I'll ever get over this. Um... I don't know. We're we're just Aaron. We're gonna have to talk about this when you get back. (laughs) (laughs) No, she's having an amazing time. I'm sure it's really fun. Well, I saw her um, Instagram photo, like her Instagram story, and I was just like, "This looks amazing!" Like it was great. Like she was in a park or something. That's been in Central Park. I didn't I didn't see this yet. I think it was Brewer Park or something. Cool. And it was just emerald green yeah. and I'm like woo spring is here yeah, they're, they're a bit ahead of us there too seasonally I think it's been warm in New York for a while oh, I love New York City so do I it's a great place mm-hmm. I gotta say I have been like even the like I've been impressed with the people yeah a lot friendlier than TV and cinema would uh, what, lead what, you to believe exactly <laughs> um, no it's, it's a great place and it's so many good pockets of neighborhoods and stuff I love any trip that involves a lot of walking and kind of like pedestrian approach to getting a sense of the, the land and I'm getting used to the pedestrian approach now because I'm starting to walk a lot because mm-hmm. like I'm trying to exercise my back right oh yeah and so the best way to exercise something basically what I I like to call passive exercise is like walking mm-hmm. where to your destination and it's so beautiful out totally. and I'm convinced that walking in fresh air improves your your emotional and, oh, and mental state yeah. and so I am just I am just, like I and then you see people mm-hmm. and you say ha it's just it's just really nice yeah and I am learning to value it more Absolutely. But you but you went on a walk this morning. Oh yeah, I'm all tuckered out now. I went on a Jane's walk. I led a Jane's walk. So tell us what a Jane's walk is. So Jane's walk is a festival that uh, happens uh, not just in Ottawa, across uh, across North America, in honor of Jane Jacobs' legacy of bringing attention to uh, public places, how we live community in our communities. Um, and my walk was focused on feminism and society and spaces so mostly just on parliament hill and down to city hall kind of reflecting on women as activists women in politics women in the law and how we're affected by the law and so you know walked across the hill to the supreme court and down to city hall and talking about women in civil society and um community activism uh finishing at marion durer plaza of course so nice yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I I have to say I had I've like nothing to report. I feel like I, I feel like I, I'm like what have I done this week? Like <laughs> like obviously I do stuff, no doubt. but it's like well what re, what what's remarkable that happened? Nothing really, oh. which is so odd for me. That's fine. I am you just need a week to just do the day to day. I do. Yeah. I do. We have a couple events coming up, so yay, that's yeah, true. You'll 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 have 
plenty of things occupying your your days in the coming weeks. I can only imagine. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, I went back to the gym. I feel good. I feel more energetic. I feel great. And that's about it. That's about it. Anyway, so since I'm boring, I'm going to make sure this episode is not. Uh-oh. So, let's go. Let's get okay, into it. Okay, uh, let's do it. So, our first item for today, we're talking about uh, Member of Parliament Aaron Weir, who was expelled from the NDP caucus after harassment investigation. So, uh, Saskatchewan MP Aaron Weir was under investigation, as we had previously discussed on the podcast, following uh, harassment complaints. So, the complaints were... Um, a variety of, of different kinds of harassment were raised um, and he has uh, been expelled um, as of a couple days ago from the NDP caucus by the leader Jagmeet Singh. Uh, the reasons are, are a bit disputed and that's sort of the contention that brings us to today but the party uh, said, uh, informed the public to say that the uh, third party investigator that was hired found that one claim of harassment and three claims of sexual harassment against Aaron Weir were in fact sustained, uh, but then reported that they were not expelling him from caucus for that reason, but because of public statements that he made. Um, so when the when he was informed of the findings, he in fact was responding to media and, talk, and commenting in a way uh, that uh, I guess lost the trust and confidence of the leader in him. Um, and Jagmeet said, uh, you know, the, his conduct uh, and his speaking out, uh, the fact that he uh, may or may not have revealed some of the identities of the women who brought forward the complaint uh, uh, were, were uh, unbecoming and, and kind of called, called his conduct overall into nature, so that into question and said that he may not have, uh, he didn't have the rehabilitative uh, sort of potential um, his response so that he wasn't taking ownership over, over what happened. Weir, for his part, is saying that the investigation was deeply flawed, that the expulsion from caucus was exaggerated. He says uh, that he was provided no guidance from the leader, leader's office about uh, how to respond or what, what to say uh, publicly, that he wanted to challenge the investigation but had no other way of doing so. He went on to suggest that the harassment complaint was in fact payback for his decision to engage in a debate, the party uh, a debate uh, about the party leadership, um, and something that was considered contentious. He uh, said that uh, caucus chair Charlie Angus and federal leader Tom Mulcair banned him from question period for several months as a punishment for having raised uh, issues, uh, particular um, issues and debates. So it's a little bit conspiratorial, um, but yeah. So, Did he say which particular issues or debates? So one of the things that uh, came out was that, uh, you know, he, had, he, he argues, you know, he spoke about a public policy issue at the 2016 Saskatchewan NDP convention um, and commented uh, about so some of the incidents around that and, and, folk, and part of Jagmeet Singh's response is that he may have identified in responding to those details and giving some additional details, he may have identified uh, who, in fact, the complainants were uh, and violated some of the, the anonymity that's, that's required, confidentiality to protect those individuals. So Jagmeet Singh's decision to expel Aaron Weir was really centered, uh, he said, on this idea uh, that he wasn't taking the results of the investigation seriously, um, including abiding by, kind of maintaining the confidentiality of the people behind them, 
um, and also just speaking in public in a way uh, that that showed uh, he wasn't willing to uh, accept his accept uh, his behavior. Uh, and again, yeah, challenging, uh, challenging, losing faith of, of his party to be able to, to um, you know, take on the recommendations of the investigator. So it's, it's an interesting, uh, interesting look. It's sort of our first chance to see how these investigations um, actually play out. It's, it's a peculiar one, and a lot of people have a lot of questions about how it's all played out. I don't know, Eric, what are your thoughts? I just think this is one big clusterfuck. <laughs> and I think it's um <laughs> there's this so I guess I guess Aaron Weir was on As It Happens mm -hmm. and he's blaming this whole thing on not being able to pick up on social cues. Yeah, so that's part of it. He says, uh, the you know, the investigator found that I sit too close to people, I talk to them for too long and I and if I made anyone uncomfortable, I'm sorry. I've been told that I don't pick up on social cues. Yeah, so that may be in the report. We haven't seen the report. That's his version of it. There may be other things in the report. He also says that what's in there and the findings are not what most Canadians, this is quoting him, would, would say is sexual harassment now. Most Canadians are not lawyers. They don't know the definition of sexual harassment, so I don't know that that's fair to say. But he is chalking it up and sort of saying, you know, this is overblown. It's really just a matter of social cues, yeah. Which is what, you know, when people who are caught doing wrongdoing usually say. Sure. I, I'm hesitant to bring this up, but I guess I, I, I do. I'd be remiss if I didn't yes. give you a heads <laughs> up about this. There's going to be more discussion, but... For months now, from the moment the story initially broke, you know, in talking to people who work on the Hill and people in the party, in the NDP, a lot of folks were, you know, oh, of course, Aaron is, is a bit awkward. Um, he, uh, he, you know, he, he doesn't read social cues well. And so I've heard that from multiple people who knew him and knew him personally. And, and I know people who he's asked out and was appropri like appropriately asked him out and was totally respectful who, you know, who also shared their experiences with him, but again, said he was awkward, you know, said, you know, the, the small talk he makes is a little strange, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I also, at the NDP convention, heard from many people in the party, many staffers who said Aaron, a lot of folks in the NDP suspect that Aaron Weir is autistic or on the spectrum, so to speak. I'm always a little, I've weirded out whenever anyone tries to diagnose someone, you're not a doctor, it's not really any place for you to speculate whether someone like, whether I wouldn't someone's know. autistic. Yeah, I, wouldn't I wouldn't know, fucking know. What, if somebody's autistic. Totally. Like, like no. Nor should you presume to know. No. Yeah. But that is a theory that people have on the Hill, let's just say. And now people are starting to tweet about it and say, you know, the NDP may not have accommodated him and should they have accommodated him, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So here's what I see. It's messy. It's it's, messy. It, it is messy, but he made it messy and good on him. He seems very bright to me. Well, he is. I mean, he's, he's, in, he's bright. Yeah. Yeah. Because he just construed a whole other... A, you know, a whole other reasoning for his behavior. But, but he doesn't say he's autistic. No, but he's... And he, in fact, denies it. No, but he, and, what he's saying is, is that, okay, 
he knows he's socially awkward, right? Oh, yes, yes. On that, right. on that sense, he's yeah. chucking it up to that. He's chucking. Sure. I'm just saying he's playing into that to to make himself a cover. Uh, I think he's oblivious to some think... parts of it, but 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 you're you're right. And I don't think. Yeah, I actually think his response is a bit more knee-jerk, just saying he's misunderstood. And in fact, he's attracted the likes of Jonathan Kay or oh, BFF, for fuck's sake. Who said if it's you know. If the issue is being weird and being weird means you're harassing people, like isn't but that? But that's not that? the fucking no, issue. It's not the it's not the issue at all. That's my oh. yeah yeah. But I'm, no, I know I'm saying this in support of your point. No. Unfortunately, uh, I mean it's a it's a deflection tactic. I don't think it's a great one. Um, but but you're 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 right. I mean he he's trying to say it's overblown and and he's seen the report. We haven't. He gets to pick and choose what things he speaks about publicly, and that's the NDP's issue that he shouldn't be talking about any of it publicly. And the other thing too is that this underlies a very dangerous messaging that we have about women who accuse men of sexual mm. harassment, and it is that well. They just didn't know that he was socially awkward. Mm-hmm. So they were mistaken. Right. And they should have put up with it and, or extended some. And, and extended some, some yeah. sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking They should have been more conciliatory, let's yeah. say. Yeah. Um, and I don't buy that for a second. I don't buy this story. <laughs> I'm not buying what he's selling. I will say this. Because, first of all, he's a politician. So they're... They're more they're more astute than one may gave them credit for, I would assume, being an NDP MP from Saskatchewan. But the other thing too is that it's like, oops, sorry. Um I I just didn't read the cues. You know, as though as though somehow the women themselves it, it just puts it back on the women. Mm-hmm. And I think he's playing a dangerous shell game. Mm-hmm. And I think in some ways we're being gaslighted. Or lit. It's, it's a common defense that people use sometimes in a different way that they misread a signal and they thought it was an invitation. Like it's kind of a similar logic. And, and then this And that's rush... not a successful no. defense in these kinds of claims. So I don't... And, you know, there was a third-party investigator, and I have to believe that the findings are rooted in something. Now, the, the issue is he was expelled not for the fact that there were this sexual harassment claims, because he is unwilling to address it and is going out in public, like, sharing these sort of conspiracy theories that he's being targeted for, you know, a political view or, or dissenting from the caucus opinion or challenging the leader or whatever it is he's also arguing. And one of the, the complaints was that was founded was a claim of, of general of harassment, not sexual harassment, but harassment for yelling at a staffer, uh, which I'm sure I would like to see a lot more MPs kind of get called out for that as well, because the, the way they treat their staff um, it's is really troubling. Yeah. It's, it's disrespectful. In fact, I would say that in this country, leadership and disrespect of staff go hand in hand. You know, it's those sociopathic values we love in our leaders. But, um, I mean, to me, if he's abusive in one way, then he's abusive in another way. That, to me, is evidence. But that's my evidence. I am, you know, I'm no lawyer. I just see, I just see a, a certain pathology developing here. Mm-hmm. And it's very similar 
to other pe- like other people who are abusive let's put it that way mm-hmm. you know the denials mm-hmm. the oh you misunderstood what i was what i was doing saying whatever and the treatment of of people who are considered less powerful than him mm-hmm. all of those things kind of point to at least you know look at the findings and we'll see what the investigation I'm I don't know if we're going to actually know what what's in the findings of the investigation but um I, you know I, I I don't believe shit all of what he's saying I don't think it's our place to sort of see a full investigation report as the exactly public. I think it's fine for those things to be confidential and to be dealt with and it's internal to the party and that's fine I think that's appropriate the issue here is a political one because, as I said, he wasn't being let go from the caucus for the specific, you know, findings of harassment. In fact, the party, I think, seemed willing to work through that with him and, you know, maybe reconcile the situation with, with whoever was involved. The issue is that he doesn't seem to have the political acumen uh, necessary to be in that caucus. He He's out, he's out you know, out there criticizing the approach instead of following the channels, uh, you know, whatever internal channel he could to challenge the investigation or take part in rehabilitating himself. Instead, he took this very odd route of of challenging the party. That's fine. You can stay an MP. You can do whatever you want, but you're not, the party's not, doesn't have an obligation to retain you as a member of caucus under the party banner. If the leader doesn't feel like you're one of the team, there are people who have been expelled from caucus for, for other sort of betra- political betrayals. So it's not, I mean, not the NDP caucus, but party caucuses in general. Right. So it's, you know, that, and, and I think that's fine. I think it's, it's a political issue, but people, of course, are going to martyr his, his experience saying that he's, you know, because part of this larger problem of, of yeah. I, I, yeah, I find um, the NDP and their their ability to message these things is just not there number one number two because first of all the base of the ndp i think would care whether or not the ndp is expelling him for cock from caucus for um or the fact that he's not being expelled because of these sexual harassment or sexual misconduct mm-hmm. um allegations I think that because the NDP does not, their audience is not like a conservative audience. Mm -hmm. So the checks and balances that they develop or have to deal with this matter a lot, especially to their constituents. So I I, I don't know what, I, I find it odd that, I don't find it odd that they expelled him just for okay okay no, i came I into I, this one way no, and no, now i'm like no i get I, what you're saying because I, i'm conflicted about it as well yeah but, you know i get it and i'm supporting their role to expel him on a political reason but right. i also wish that they had been more stronger on the sexual harassment front and maybe had articulated that better that's and right showed yeah how they were actually going to exactly ability to what happened exactly and maybe use that chance to introduce a process mm-hmm. or 
I'm obviously are people aware um, of the process. Yes, way yes. They obviously, they have a process, or else they wouldn't. We wouldn't be talking about the oh, investigators. Oh, it's not clear. You're stuff. right, though. It's not clear what that process. Exactly. Is. It, feels, it does feel a bit ad hoc. Ad hoc. Yes. Yeah. And I, I like. It does make me question the leaders' leadership. I have to say, and but then, it's not like. There have been a lot of questions about Jagmeet Singh's leadership. I don't think this helps him. I think it, it is unfortunate that a lo the, the only times we see him are in this sort of crisis response that's dealing with internal party dynamics. So yeah. Whether it's this or, you know, the, the emotion of, um, you know, Christofferson from one post right. to another for speaking out on this and that. It's very, like... He, it does kind of you kind of get a sense that he's not able to lead the caucus um, or that he's you know there's there's a challenging of his authority which isn't a good look either. well this is the other thing I want to bring in so um, I got a question for you Amy <laughs> so last week we talked about or my rent and receipts was about a black mayor mm -hmm. who is constant consistently being challenged um, whose leadership was consistently being challenged uh, by the council, by the city council, in so much as that they they brought her pay down to equal mm -hmm. theirs. And I talked about, about how white males don't play nice. They don't, they don't, they're not lo as loyal to CEOs of color mm -hmm. and consistently try to undermine them, right? And I'm like, I'm sorry, but I, I really wonder how much of that is playing into this, um, this Jagmeet Singh leadership issue. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it is to some degree for absolutely. And I think, um, you know, it's been a bit of a slower transition than people expected. There are still staff positions on the Hill that have not yet been filled. There are for the some, yeah, and there's still some carryover of Tom Walker's people right. that need to go. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. And yeah. So I don't think he has like the full, like a fully in, um, formed leader's office in the way that you would want. He also has the burden of not being in the house, so there's that tension as well. Um, there are people who are very loyal to him, and I think he, you know, has a good relationship with some of the front bench of the NDP. But, um, I mean, you do get the sense that there are some sore points. I mean, Charlie, Ang Charlie, Charlie Angus is still shit-talking. Yes, I know. Yes. Okay, okay. And that I, is a great I example. Think Charlie has a lot of it, some issues around race and, and people of, of, of uh, racialized backgrounds taking the lead in the party. I, I get that. I, I have a very strong sense of that, and other people have pointed it out as well. Um, you're right. He's... he's, he's he doesn't have the full uh, backing. Um, and, the, and, and, yeah. and I mean, that's to put it lightly. Yeah. yeah, and there seems to be factions and fissures growing in that True. party, and it doesn't look good for them. And no. it definitely they doesn't... They don't have a lot of time to get it together. No, either. no, they it's don't. They need to get their shit together. Yeah. I'm sorry. And it's not all Jagmeet Singh. It's no, them. No, it's not... I don't think it's his... I don't think it's his fault. I, I think he has some... There's some structural issues, again, being not in an elected seat not in the house physically every day that that's a barrier um, you know what i'd like and, to see and i think people blame him i just want to add one more thing. yeah people, yeah people blame also him for losing um 
for not having a strong position about the you know affiliations what so called with Sikh extremism and, and not denouncing um, uh, you know that sort of thing that he didn't have a, a strong enough response. And you notice at the time, you think we talked about this as well, that the yeah. party was really silent and absent in that discussion and sort of left it as sort of the Jagmeet Singh problem and not the party problem to I think challenge the yeah. racism in the mainstream yeah. here around that yeah. and from other parties. I think they're undermining him. And I think they're 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 trying to like I think they're setting him up to fail. I'm not ready to say that, but it's not it's not looking great. And I and I'm, I'm I I'll say it. <laughs> no, but I'm questioning people's motives for sure. For sure. All right, let's move on. Let's do it. Okay, so our next item for this week is it's, uh, I don't know why we're giving this woman air, but I think it bears some sort of discussion. Christy Blackford wrote a piece in the National Post last week about TVO Steve Pagan saying he was vindicated on mass misconduct ac- accusations, uh, but what a price he had to pay. And so the uh, investigators who were who, uh, looking into the allegations of sexual harassment brought forward by Sarah Thompson against Steve Pakin. Uh, the, the investigator, uh, Rachel uh, Turnpenny, found that there was no wrongdoing, um, and so it cleared him of that. But in her 27-page report, she does say that there was, um, you know, that, that Sarah Thompson, who raised this uh, complaint, believed that it happened, that she, she, she genuinely believed that that uh, happened, but weighed sort of the, the the evidence and just said, you know, there isn't enough here to, to substantiate that uh, uh, per se, but didn't believe, but believe, felt that Sarah Thompson herself was credible. Well, for her part, Christy Blackford is saying, um, you know, again, like many folks, Steve Pakin, what an amazing guy. <laughs> he, uh, he is such an upright citizen. I have been on his show and I would never have imagined he could do this. And I never, I always knew he could, he was incapable of, of such a heinous act. The fact that his name is now in the same sentence as all of these other Me Too um, uh, men who've been named uh, is a travesty. And, uh, you know, his name has been kind of put through the mud, run through the mud, um, and, and what a, what a sad sight that is. Um, and she also says some really disparaging things about Sarah Thompson herself, um, you know, sort of, uh, dismissing her, disparaging, uh, disparaging her, uh, you know, as a failed, you know, two, three time, uh, mayoral, mayoral candidate, um, and kind of using that as a, as a put down and a questioning her credibility because, she doesn't have the credentials that, say, Steve Pekin has. That's because Christy Blatchford is a misogynist. <laughs> yeah, this is an example of a woman who um, who excoriates other women. Mm. For sport, almost. I, it, mm. it feels like it's for sport. She's an awful human being. Mm-hmm. Okay? And she's not even that good of a writer. So I don't even know why she gets all this fanfare. No, she's really not. But Shh. I mean, she like, has a lot of company. What is it with all these misogynist women who seem to have like a free platform? Not just the because, National Post, but elsewhere. Uh, you know what? It, I, I honestly think... Oh, God, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> where to begin? Where to begin? I mean, I think... Okay, I think to have a voice that is backed by institutional culture like media like Mm -hmm. Canadian media specifically I think you have to parrot 
a lot of what the men believe or say or I mean that was the whole thing about second wave feminism right is that we had to be men to succeed basically and I feel like institutions um, shine give openings and spaces to those who be who believe and parrot their values unfortunately those values are male values right and so it's like it's like when black people it's it's like kanye actually if you really think about it kanye who just shit all over black people um multiple times um basically played into a white stereotype about black people yeah and when we say people are Uncle Toms, that's what we mean. Mm -hmm. When we, when you hear that, that's I know like this isn't really Canadian vernacular, but we talk about like black people talk about you know doing a jig. That's mm -hmm. exact. It is white people's entertainment right. almost, right? And I feel like Christy Blatchford, who loves to take the time to shit all over women, is the same way. Mm -hmm. Like she's. She's feminism's Kanye. That's a that's a great example, a great comparator. I think you're right. Like the powers that be in this case, massage like the patriarchy loves to have women to put out there who can say all the disgusting things that they are saying all the time, um, and you know, kind of reinforcing those ideas, and also with the cover of of a, some sort of layer of legitimacy of being of that group and kind of. Exactly, yeah. because being of that group adds a legitimacy to your words, even if you're just a puppet. Because mm -hmm. I think she's basically, I don't, I don't think Christy Blatchford is particularly intelligent. I don't think she's particularly like. Apparently, she was a crime reporter. I was gonna say, what's her story? Where did she come from? Apparently, she was a her beat was like crime reporting, mm -hmm. and she would sit in trials and stuff and report on them. Mm -hmm. I don't know who bumped her up to columnist because a she's not really a good writer b she's not she doesn't have a depth of thought mm -hmm. that I think a columnist should have right mm -hmm. her opinion pieces are literally trash well I think an opinion in this one is wanting I mean I don't know what she's saying because if her thesis is that Steve Pagan paid too high of a price and in the same breath she thanks the TVO president as for taking the brave position of keeping Steve Pakin in his job. Well, then surely his reputation didn't suffer because he kept his job throughout the investigation. He continued to host his show, but also I've seen nothing but people praising him, going out of their way. And I know many people who've appeared on the show during the investigation, people are not declining interviews. People are still going to TVO to be interviewed by him. But also I don't think that's what anyone is seeking out of these investigations. No one is saying, necessarily depending on the conduct right because there's a whole spectrum right like it's not that everyone's a harvey weinstein not everyone is a serial rapist most people aren't rapists they just commit day-to-day -day harassment and the solution to addressing that isn't that they get fired necessarily or that we denigrate them uh in every sense it may be that they take a step back that they work on it that they try to reconcile with the people they've hurt that they do a training that again that it's restorative that it's purposive because the idea of all of these investigations and of sexual harassment law and of human rights law in general is purposive. It's to correct the behavior. It is to, you know, change this kind of conduct so that the systemic problem uh, doesn't persist.
And no I'm, one benefits when Steve Pagan gets fired, right? Well, I mean, I'm, I unless yeah. he's actually hurting people physically right, in right. an imminent way, that's right. different. I'm but. not. I'm not like you know. Whenever people are like, ooh, I I think I think the same as you. I I don't think there's a black and white answer. I think you're right. A lot of these guys grew up in a time when these a lot of these things were acceptable, mm -hmm. and or that women didn't speak out or have a right to speak that's out. Right. Um, thankfully I'm not of that gen or I, you know, mom, hi. <laughs> um, but I, I, I really, I agree with you. I think that a correct, like to try, give it, if the nature of the conduct is such that it is of the lower end of the spectrum, wherever we decide that that lower end sure. is, yeah. right? Because that's a discussion we need. Yeah, have, we have yeah. to have that discussion, but we're not having any formative discussions like <laughs> that. Um, if it's of the lower end, then yeah, I'm totally good with with a restorative approach. I mean, I'm assuming that he's not going. He's no Bill Cosby and raping people because that's just that's just that's just no, predatory. And I, and I hope not. And if that's the case, people should come forward. Um, well, nobody's going to gonna want to come forward after this trash piece. That's the thing. I mean, this is quite quite a deterrent to, to write something like this and have it published in National Post. It's just some BS. But I think, yeah, I mean, it deters people. It does nothing to, you know, it, again, perpetuates this myth of, of false reporting that is just factually inaccurate. The other thing it does is it sort of takes away this, again, it reinforces this idea uh, that, um, you know, Again, about in terms of false reporting, that women are not to be believed, and we're in a finding of an investigation, you know, where it's unsubstantiated or there isn't enough evidence, it means the woman is a liar. She, the whole yeah. article challenges uh, Sarah Thompson's credibility. That's not what the investigator found. In fact, this investigator found that she was credible. She believed what she said, but they couldn't, you know, couldn't reach the conclusion that it in fact happened or or substantiated in, in, in it a particular way it well, didn't rise to the yeah. level of well the, yeah there's two tests right there's two things an investigator is looking for first of all did the incident that the person is describing happen yes and sometimes you can find you know they believe it happened but we have no evidence that it happened or it didn't happen or it happened and if it happened you go to the next step which is to say is the conduct that happened sexual harassment does it meet the legal definition not the general public's definition the legal definition of sexual harassment and sometimes that's not the case sometimes a comment that you know may be offside is not actually sexual harassment it's still rude it could still be fucked up it could be inappropriate but it's not sexual harassment um at the same time you can have due process you can have an outcome that comes out like this you can have all the procedural fairness and a, and you can still believe the survivor but the investigation may not come out to say it's it's founded, and that's okay. That's let me give you an example. So when I was working in the public service, I was um, basically um, accosted by email mm. um, with racism from okay. a former um, colleague. Okay, I reported it. And they tried to tell me it wasn't harassment. Mm. Yeah, okay. Like, I, 
it doesn't mean it didn't happen and there's no legitimacy to it. I'm sure I have that email somewhere. Um, I like to keep receipts yeah, just in no, case. That's good. Yeah. Um, yeah, because I sent it to my personal email. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is somebody who used government resources sure. to spread this filth. Mm-hmm. And it was it had to do with um, you know why are black people so it it, it, it pertained to inferiority. Jesus. Yeah, and so the public service uh, investigated, and I use that that term loosely, mm-hmm. and found no, that's not harassment. Mm-hmm. It's not racism. Well, and investigators are not the end all be all. They are. It depends who has appointed them and hired them and what their background is. And you can get a real spectrum of, of investigators. Exactly. Some of them are quite shitty. Yeah. And some are some are amazing. Some and if are, they're in the public service, I just assume they're shitty. Well, you know, if you're in the public service, you have a right to grieve, and you should file a grievance to challenge, you can challenge the, you know, findings in some cases if you mm-hmm. believe the employer hasn't done enough, or that the, or that the investigation is flawed, uh, you can challenge Well, they the, said the they were going to do this investigation. I don't even think they actually did a proper investigation. I, I really don't believe they did shit all about it. Mm-hmm. But the point is, is that, yeah, it's harassment. I mean, yeah, I mean, like any legal uh, definition, how it's applied can be debated. Um, And, you know, the investigator may get it wrong. Yeah, absolutely. So what I'm saying to this is to me, just because the investigation didn't turn up. First of all, it never said that she was lying. It never found her statements untrue. No. So let's go on to the Nobel Prize because I've had enough of Christy Blatchford. That's absolutely fair. So the next news item for this week in feminism is a Nobel Prize in Literature for 2018 has been canceled after sexual assault scandal. Man, we have a lot of sexual assault on the agenda Oh my god. Well, we didn't even talk about Tom Brokaw. There there ain't enough time. Girl, he was one of my faves. I feel like Dan Rather is the only one left. Don't. And even have no heroes. I I know you keep telling me this. The uh, the thing that really pissed me off about the Tom Brokaw thing is all the women and and journalists who came to stand for him, including Rachel Maddow. That was pretty devastating. What? Yeah. What? No, I'm sorry. Yeah, Back up. I have what to did find, you say? To find the article, but essentially. <laughs> There are, uh, there's a letter that went around, Maria Shriver, Rachel Maddow, Andrea Mitchell all signed it supporting Tom Brokaw, and they were essentially saying, you know, he was such a lovely mentor, he was always, you know, he's given each of us opportunities for advancement, championed our success through our careers, as we have advanced across industries, news, publishing, law, business, government. You know, Tom has valued, been a valued source of counsel and support. We know him to be a man of tremendous tena- decency and integrity. I was like, whoa, are those the words they chose? Yeah, they did. So just that, that classic bullshit of, well, he was nice to me, and I can't imagine he would have been any different with anyone else. What a great guy. Rachel Maddow is a Rhodes Scholar. Maria Shriver is a Kennedy, so those two are going to succeed no matter what. <laughs> and and they, did, they didn't really need to talk about They didn't need fucking it. Tom. Bro- <laughs> Maria Shriver is a damn Kennedy. Get the fuck out of here. They're trying to dig up all. They're trying yeah. to dig up like 
great grand Kennedys just just to push them out to run, yeah. whether or not they're talented or not. So don't give me that shit. Oh God, and the third out. one, Andrea Mitchell is overrated as fuck. Okay, <laughs> I she's another one. I'm like, why am I listening to this woman? I don't find her particularly. Um, engaging mm. she's not engaging actually mm-hmm. she um she uh, she reads the news like she just picked up the newspaper and you know what fuck tom brokaw for giving us that there you go well i guess we did what we had to say on tom brokaw there there's a little <laughs> there's a little mini pod within the pod so let's no, i'm glad we did that yeah it's really fucked up it really is fucked up and you know what as soon as i saw i was like tom really you know what I mean? And then I was like, well, there you go. Click. And then I'm like, so what's Dan Rather saying? <laughs> you know what I mean? oh, oh, my gosh. Anyway. Like, I, I really love that meme that's kind of like every time you see like your fa- favorite celebrity's name, at this point, you're just hoping that they die. Yeah, I know. Is when he, they're trending, yeah, you're just exactly. like, did he die? Exactly. It's better off. It's on. It's. I mean, anyway, people think it's sadly it's better off that if they had <laughs> I know, I know. What a time to be alive, am I right? Yes, you are, girl. Yes, you are. So, the Nobel Prize for Literature is also mired in a similar controversy, and they've tried to handle it in in a particular way, so (laughs) driven by some infighting, some resignation. I love this story. This story. together. We're going to get together. (laughs) Sorry. No, it's fine. So, there's been some infighting with the uh, Swedish Academy uh, that that runs the uh, the Nobel Prize. There have been some infighting around the sexual misconduct allegations, financial malpractice as well. There have been some repeated leaks. It's been quite a quite a tense few moments. Uh, the prize, for the first time since 1949, uh, secretive jury which hands it out, uh, this prestigious literary prize, will not be unveiling uh, a winner this fall. Instead, they'll reveal two laureates for 2019. The present decision was arrived at in view of the current diminished academy. They, they're down to uh, 10 seats instead of the 12 that's required, as well as the reduced public confidence in the academy, and, and this is a statement uh, 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 from, from the organization last Friday. We find it necessary to commit time to recovering public confidence before the next laureate can be announced. This is out of respect for future and previous uh, literary laureates who wanted to kind of preserve its integrity of the, the, the institution. At the root of this issue is an unprecedented crisis that caused Costa a raft of wide-ranging allegations against Jean-Claude Arnaud, a photographer and leading cultural figure in Sweden uh, who is married to uh, Katarina Fronstein, an, ac- uh, an Academy member and author. Last November, the Swedish no- newspaper uh, published details of allegations of 18 women accusing Arnaud of sexual harassment physical abuse over a period of more than 20 years wow. in France and Sweden, including uh, properties, o- including at properties owned by the Academy itself. Uh, and, you know, there, there's a lot more uh, details uh, about uh, about what's going on. It's not, it's sexual harassment and physical abuse. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, and 18. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's not an inconsequential amount. He, he's a central figure in, in that community and in the academy um as is his partner his wife so um yeah pretty pretty troubling what do you think of how uh they're dealing with it how the Nobel prize academy is dealing with it 
So because it just goes to show that um, the power was too concentrated. Mm. I don't see why. Okay, so I don't. I I don't see why people have to be shafted out of the Nobel Prize for Literature if they had a more sort of. Um, if they had a more equal distribution of power within that community, mm. you know, if if the most prominent one falls, people could t take up the, you know. The issue is that there people in the group are divided about how to approach it, and there's there's you know airing of, of a lot of other things that came out as part of it, and <laughs> and and new seats that now have to be filled because they're they need to appoint people to these. The, the jury. I mean, my thing is more like, why is it that so much emphasis is placed on what is sort of a secretive, very small group, jury group? There seem to be a little bit shady, um, and and yet we allow sort of the dictates of this group to influence taste and culture. Um, and you know, I mean, they're giving it, they're giving one prize, one prize among many sort of literary prizes out there, but it's giving a lot of stock and a lot of weight. Um, and and can make, kind of make or break careers and I don't I don't know that awards should have that sort of it's you that know what I mean like, well it's that again it's that concentration of power mm. why should a you know the Nobel why should a Swedish jury um, who I would assume right I I'm just saying I know this is an assumption I would assume they're also very insular. Yeah, I think that the t they're not. I, we again, we don't fully know because of the process. But they're but, selected, but, and they're they're yeah they're. Are they appointed for life? Do we know? I don't. I don't think so. But I don't know for sure. Okay, so it's like it's they're like definitely they, coming from a particular community. Yes, yeah. and they're. I'm sure they're all of the same ilk, yeah. class, status, etc., yeah. etc. Et yeah, there's there's an inherent eliteness. There is, but it's the same thing we talk about with the Academy Awards, mm -hmm. and it's this, the Grammys, yeah. and I love disruption. I really do, <laughs> um, but they needed to be disrupted. I love that it's by their own hand. I don't love it that 18 women had to suffer for it. No. But I will say this, it's about time that uh, that Nobel Prize Academy, who, who as you said, is so influential worldwide in terms of culture, the direction of culture, what constitutes taste, and it's all very elite. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, I'm not saying that they have not been sort of, uh, how should I say? Um, maybe they've been more adventurous than, uh, in terms of uh, their choices, mm -hmm. but even then, I'm uh, you know I I just I don't like the idea anymore of an elite sequestered um, group of people who only re who represent probably the smallest in proportion part of society determining what is good art. Mm -hmm. That's my problem. Mm -hmm. Because they never recognize good art when it's disrupting. They recognize it 30 or 40 years, a generation later. Right, I see what you mean, yeah. You know, yeah. because they do not have 
the diversity of experiences or tastes on that panel or in that club to look at something that is not like that is not familiar to them and this goes for all of the organizations and awards I talked about um, that they do not have the diversity of members to look at something that's different from them and to value it I mean I'm looking at the, the list of past winners and there's some, some really interesting and notable ones who, who were a bit more um, uh, radical for their time. I mean, Toni Morrison is a Nobel Prize winner for literature from 1993. For sure. I'm just saying um, the Nobel Prize is better than the most. No, no, yeah, yeah. for sure. I'm just, you know, I, and then, yeah, I'm just sort of noting that. I mean, there's a lot of regional uh, diversity, folks, a lot of um, representation by, um, interestingly, Chinese writers, um, a lot of folk works uh, honored, or uh, Orhan uh, Pamak, uh, Turkish writer, um, won in uh, tw uh, 2008, so there, or 2006 rather. So there, there is a range uh, of perspectives, um, notably for Canada, Alton Munro won in 2013. And they, there's different approaches sort of taken, uh, I mean, or sort of different kinds of writing taken, uh, whether it's plays or poetry, um, or novels that are, are recognized by them. Last year, Bob Dylan, or in, rather in 2016, Bob Dylan uh, was recognized for, for his poetry, poetic expression rather, um, for his songs and, and, and in that sense. So it has sort of a, a broad definition, but at the same time, I mean, for in order for these things to, to have buy-in, I think you need a better understanding of how they work and have them kind of closer to people in a way that can be respected. I... Um, it's funny. I think one of the one of the things that people like this who are used to setting the agenda um, really the power that comes with that is is just a minefield for these kinds of things mm -hmm. for abuse, for harassment, for assault. Well, that that's it. I mean, the the uh, yeah yeah the stat the status. There's a certain. Um, I mean. Yeah, a, a drive to power, power where make you know they're right like people who are in fields that are also as writers and authors often glamorize and, and take advantage of of their of their role. Um, Most definitely. Yeah. Most definitely. However, I mean the Nobel Prize. Um, <laughs> um, Do you pay attention to lists like that, to awards like that? Is the influence you don't. You're not a, a hobby reader, so no. No, I don't. Okay, so I always say that. Let me. I'm more music. Okay. So okay. I love music. Are you, are you influenced music. by awards? No. I. I used to love award shows when I was a kid. Oh, me too. Big right? Time. Yeah. Because then you could see your your your. Oh, it's this so was exciting. at a time. It was, and but remember, it was like must see TV kind of thing. Like you all yeah. had to watch it. You, and, like, yeah. It a thing to talk about. And if you missed it, it's not like you've had people on. You couldn't follow Riri on Instagram. Exactly. It was like your I one think, chance to see them interact. I think, unfortunately, the problem with with those award shows, which is not their doing. Um, their undoing is basically the ability to see your star anytime or mm -hmm. your be as a fan. 
So there used to be a time where you would only see um, your favorite stars at award shows and in interviews if they were big enough, right? Mm -hmm. Because Diane Sawyer, whoever, was not, you know, she was interviewing Michael Jackson, not, you know, Reba or... <laughs> Not Tito. You know what right, I mean? Right, right. But if you like Tito, you're yeah. shit out of luck. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I think the accessibility to your favorite artist, mm -hmm. no matter who it is, is um, is one of the undoings of award shows. Mm -hmm. Second of all, they're long. And third, they've really gotten quite boring. Um, but I I always say that you never want to be when win rap album of the year. Because after that, your career goes oh. to shit. <laughs> Ludacris, LL Cool J. Uh, oh yeah, you're right. Totally. You know, um, there's. Well, a... I think a lot of people would think that those, those awards were also unearned. I don't think that they were properly um, analyzed mm -hmm. as as mu as musical genre. They probably just went with what their kid was listening to. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I I like. Well, or the safe commercial choice. Or the right? safe choice, yeah. which is not really saying anything. Mm -hmm. And that's the other thing, is that, um, and like I said, I think Europe is in a way better at this than than we are, in the sense that even if, like, if you speak out about certain things in North America, you're not going to get an award for anything. Mm -hmm. Even if that work is great, because... You have to, we, we have this thing about taking on, about silence and about, and about being inoffensive. Whereas I feel like Europeans are a little bit different in that sense. Right. I could be wrong. I mean, you know, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. That's mm -hmm. fine. But in my experience that they can deal with um, better as long as there's some sort of intellectual basis to it, let's right. say. Whereas we want everything to be sunshine and roses all the time, so we don't want to be offended, and we, we don't like offensive stuff. But when offensive things happen, we want to downplay it. And this is what pisses me off about the way we talk about these things. It's, it's that... It's as though we want, like, the Aaron Weir thing, mm. I feel like a bunch of people are just, are, are taking the view that it's just a misunderstanding because they don't want to deal with the issue at hand. Mm. And I have no respect for that. That's, you know, I think that, you know, kicking the can down the road is a coward's way out. Mm. That's my opinion. I could be wrong. Mm. Well, it is my opinion. So there. So you can't be wrong. I can't be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> For our next news item for this week in feminism, UK ministers told to demand gender pay gap actions from key sectors. So in the UK, cabinet ministers must demand sectors under their remit produce action plans to reduce their gender pay gaps, reporting back within six months, which is a pretty fast timeline. So the gender pay gap has fallen slightly from 19.8% in 2010 to 18.4% in 2017 in the UK. But on current projections, will close uh, will not be closed for another closed rather for another thirty four years. <laughs> so speaking of that's cabinet, fast. Yeah, but yeah, maybe. <laughs> speaking
speaking to the cabinet, uh, Theresa May said that the UK should be proud to be one of the first countries in the world to introduce gender pay gap reporting in over 10,000 large companies. All public sector bodies have now reported, uh, with 97% meeting the deadline. However, the government is understood to have contacted 1,500 companies to demand an explanation as to why they have not complied. So the Prime Minister said uh, this has significantly raised the exposure of the issue across the country. It's an important first step in driving the cultural change that we need. Uh, and, uh, you know, figures released over the course of the past few months show that 8 out of 10 employers pay men more than women. 8 out of 10 pay men more than women. And the Equalities and Human Rights Commission is responsible for enforcing the law uh, for companies with over 250 employees uh, in terms of reporting their figures. And so they will continue to do that until all of all the companies have reported and answered for why they have a gap at all. It's pretty cool. Why don't they just haul them in front of Parliament? Oh, they will, I'm sure. They have six feel, months to report, so that's something. That's a decent time frame. I feel like I want to see them. I want to see them up close and personal and tell us why this gender pay gap exists mm -hmm. and what they're doing about it. Mm -hmm. I feel like a parliamentary committee is is quite yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, seems like there's a decent amount of oversight. The fact that each minister is responsible uh, for. Um, for overseeing that the uh, departments under their purview are are acting on this is really important. Um, and of course, then other human rights commission body is another body that has oversight as well. Um, it seems like there's a lot of political will behind it, which I don't quite think we have yet here in, in Canada. We have a lot of good promises and nice language. Mm -hmm. As usual, because that's how we do everything yeah, with no substance. The, the other issue in Canada, a lot of folks are, are turning their minds to this, is how you measure it. So, like, gathering that kind, those kinds of statistics is challenging because you need a comparator group uh, of, of men in different workforces. Right. And, maybe, and so, you know, it, it's, it's, it's tough. It's a huge undertaking uh, to actually do that. And a lot of these, we don't have this kind of reporting already required. So some places may not gather that data as it stands, would have to find ways of actually doing that um, and applying it to uh, to the people on their payrolls. It's a little bit tricky. Well, I think, I think the first, I think it's the federal government, you can require it of the federal government, I think, does have a requirement for companies that it contracts out. Yes, I was, I was thinking yeah. that, and that's exactly what I was thinking. And then I was thinking, okay, but that's only... Yeah, it's a limited number of, of companies that actually, yeah. I, I guess the question is, um, do these, it, it's the carrot or the stick, really. Mm -hmm. Which, which works better? And when do you use the carrot and when do you use the stick? The stick being, being um, what the UK is doing, which is l more like, le not legal, but yeah, legal ramifications, I guess. Um, or, or whether it fines or some sort or, of Or yeah, whatever or, or it is. Something like that, yeah. And um, the 
but then the carrot is the is incentivizing them, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and in the case of if you want a contract with the government, then right. certainly that, and and but there must be other ways as well to set a similar exactly. Structure. I don't know what the incentive would be, and that's that's where I'm stuck. Well, I think that's where the language around the value of of a pay equity system matters. I think. So how we talk about it and how we revere it and not want and you want companies to want to uh, brand or align themselves with that as a value as a as a as a uh, positive and proactive action that they're taking um, because it will reap other benefits whether it's consumer um, consumer allegiance or people kind of gravitating towards those companies and recruitment it's a great recruitment tool as well. Uh, to be a company that that touts uh, good metrics around pay equity, I'm sure would be quite positive, right? That I mean, those are those are all sorry, it's a bit diffuse, but those are good carrots. Actually, you bring up a great point, and maybe maybe that's maybe that's what is necessary. Is that I think it? I think when companies really realize it's a thing, mm-hmm. is when they hear it through recruiting so I um, somebody I, I, I want to say somebody was writing about law school recruitment mm-hmm. and one of the reasons that um, firms are looking at work-life balance more now is because they heard it from the people they were trying to recruit yeah absolutely and if those firms can no longer recruit what they call the best, mm-hmm. then, the, then that kind of forces them to do something. Because what they found was there was a sharp increase in those concerns about having a life, about having rest, about, you know, not working, you know, 100 hours a week or whatever. And that's generational. It's, it's different for... I guess the millennial generation. Absolutely. Um, I wonder if the same will happen when it comes to the gender pay gap, Mm -hmm. because that's what we're talking about. And having these kind of societal discussions about these things, especially in the wake of Time's Up, Me Too, um, and harassment, and so on and so forth, really does filter down to the average college student, I guess, or the average mm-hmm. university student. And these are the things that they're talking about. Mm-hmm. So when they go to um, firms, top firms or not, these are the questions they're asking. Yeah, the absolutely. firm has to respond. Well, how did, exactly. How do you respond to that okay. if you have nothing? Well, what's your gender pay gap and why? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think everybody should be asking that. Mm-hmm. I, That's I, a really good point. Yeah. yeah. Why? I I think sometimes we look at the... I'm going to sound like a fucking Republican. I'm so sorry. Um, I don't... I think sometimes we need to start the action ourselves. Mm-hmm. Hell, I think in most times, if not all times, we have to start the action ourselves by signals. That's a huge signal. Totally. And then it it can't always come from top down. It has to be a change in culture. Mm-hmm. And if we start with these discussions, we start with these with these demands, we should be demanding. Okay, mm-hmm. example, Ottawa. Yeah. I wanna know, I would like to ask every, 
everybody who's running, every incumbent to ask why the fuck is the Ottawa City Council only 17% or 18% female? And why the hell? And this isn't, this is the City Council. We're not even talking about the staff. What's the gender pay gap for your staff? And um, that should be when people knock on your door in the summer, mm. ask that question. Then they're going to be like, oh shit. Okay, but we need to ask the fucking question mm-hmm. and not just be like, eh, no, um, we need to put these people are responsible to us, even the corporations, even the people who are in those private companies or private corporations, they have clients, they need to make money, they're responsible to their clients, right? Their clients, whoever they may be, may be responsible to us. Mm -hmm. Let's tug on that chain Mm -hmm. and actually have them come out on record saying something. Right. That's what I want because I know who I feel sorry for ever knocks on my ass door. Okay, (laughs) because I'm going to be like, what's your gender pay gap? What are you doing to close Mm -hmm. the gender pay gap? And if you have no answer, I'm going to shut my door Mm -hmm. because I'm tired of this. What is your... What's your view on carding? You know what I mean? Yeah. We need to ask, why are we holding these people accountable? Yeah, we have to ask tough questions. What's frustrating is I know what the answer you're going to get is. It's going to be, well, we have to study that. We have to gather the data. No. And it's a bullshit (laughs) response. I mean, we've been talking about pay equity. We've been talking about employment equity for, for a long time. Just to throw it back to my tour from today, I mean, the first pay, equal pay legislation was introduced in Ontario in 1951. 1951. Bitch, what? Yeah. <laughs> we've been, so we've been fighting this a long time. Agnes McPhail, who's the first female or woman a member of parliament, uh, and later also became a member of provincial parliament in Ontario, was the first to introduce uh, this legislation. It passed. It's the first equal pay legislation, 1951. So people have been talking about this issue for a long time. For a damn long time. I feel like that Viola Davis gif when she's um um in in How to Get Away with Murder. You know oh, that oh, gif, know. that gif and How to Get Away. With oh yeah. You know that gif though where she just she just looks, she takes her purse and just walks yes, out. Yes, I feel like yes, that. Yeah. I really do. Oh, well, please don't walk out. We still have half a podcast. I well, obviously. <laughs> I'm just like, I, I can't even, I, listen, ask, ask the question. Just begin by asking the question. Don't, don't let them, don't let them wiggle their way out of it where we don't know. We don't have a lot of data. I would like to know how many women are on your staff? Mm -hmm. What are their roles? Because I want to know the distribution. Where do you put the women on your staff? Do you put them in light, fluffy roles, or do you actually give them something with substance? What? How many minorities do you have on your staff? Visible minorities. You know. Absolutely. Why the fuck aren't we holding these people? I listen. I feel sorry for anybody who is. I'm like, this is an election time. Let me use this time <laughs> to actually hold these people accountable because we're not. We're not. We're just having nice, light conversations. Mm-hmm inoffensive conversation well obviously not on this podcast but (laughs) inoffensive conversations that don't do shit 
And I'm tired. I'm just tired of not doing shit. Anyway, okay, that's my piece. So, on that light note, <laughs> next is rent and receipts. So we're back with rent and receipts where each of us brings a story where the others comment on. And Amy, do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? No, I'm happy to go first. Go ahead. Okay, so my piece uh, is taken from the Huffington Post, uh, an article written uh, by guest writer Shanita Hubbard. She's writing about how the ride or die mentality is killing black women. And this is um, a piece that's very self-reflexive in response to a story from last week about um, police coming forward uh, and accusing Nas of domestic violence. She said that she had bruises all over her body at different points of the relationship. That when she was seven months pregnant, she was absolutely terrified, thinking she couldn't bring a person into their toxic relationship. And she um, goes into great detail about uh, what that looked like. Um, and again, a lot of physical and emotional abuse that she details. Uh, so this author is writing um, about how um, you know the woman, the mentality of of a rider of rider die, the idea that black women are expected to show love. In way in, in 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 every sense and stand by their man, so to speak, is literally killing women. Um, she she posits. She says, um, you know, based on the lyrics of the original "Ride or Die" bitch song by uh, LOX featuring Timbaland and Eve, the lyrics uh, sort of set out this idea that some think that qualify a woman as "Ride or Die" is the willingness to literally kill for her man. She will do a lot more than just write or visit him. She will find ways to have sex with him while he's in prison and other examples. Um, yes, and part of those examples are uh, hyperbolic, but the implication uh, of songs like this is that there's an expectation that love be demonstrated by endless, reckless kind of loyalty. Um, and you know, she, she's reflecting on her, the writer's reflecting on her experience of years of being a fan of hip hop. Um, saying she can find um, no examples of a ride-or-die man uh, on the inverse. And there's uh, no expectation for a man to love black women to the same degree that he would risk his own personal safety, freedom, and uh, unredeemable years of his life. Yet so many examples of ride-or-die women in TV and music and even in real-life public relationships. And she's she's arguing that as well the concept (coughs) <coughs> of ride or die is just inter- internalized misogynoir, misogyny directed towards black women by another name. In a way, it's a way to control women's actions and strip them of agency and power in their interactions with men. Uh, a ride or die, uh, no matter what, how, no matter how brave or hard she may be, must still be submissive to her man, thus keeping the patriarchal power uh, powers uh, that be in place. This internalization creeps in slowly, but holds on tightly, and its hold is dangerous and deadly for black women. Um, and, and, you know, she reflects on statistics that show uh, studies showing that black women are four times more likely than white women to be killed by domestic violence, um, and, and reflects about the nature of, of, uh, of abusive relationships, how, it, how hard it is to get out, and, and how this concept um, you know, of, of, of being ride or die and, and that, that being a, a goal standard to hold women up by 
actually harms harms women in, in such uh, dangerous ways. So, um, okay, I'm trying to figure out where to start with this. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to there's a lot to unpack. I'm I'm glad you brought up massage noir. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, I'm sure, a term. Oh, that's a term that um, I think we like. I remember talking about French Montana and his treatment of a black girl on Twitter and called it massage noir. Like he went in on her in a way that was just grotesque. Mm. And I'm sure he would never treat a white woman like that. Um, but Miss um, the ride or die chick is a pervasive um, caricature in, in, in hip hop. Mm-hmm. The funny thing is, when I heard... Okay, so I... You know I love Twitter. One of the reasons I love Twitter is because these conversations usually originate on Twitter. Yeah. And my feed has been talking about this since um, Beyonce is really... um, Oh, yeah. Where this issue really galvanized. Mm. First, she has... The on the run tour. Remember when she had the on the run tour yeah. with Jay Z yeah. a few years? Yeah. Uh, I want. It was before Lemonade, so maybe 2014 or 2015. And she dressed herself up as this ride to, ride or die check. Mm-hmm. And I think it was kind of it was questioned, let's say. Mm-hmm. But really, when Lemonade came out, and then Jay Z's 444, mm-hmm. and the different perspectives of those two um, albums really said, um, really talked about, like that's where the conversation really took kind of like this extra turn. So um, Flair also wrote about this. Um, I know, I'm, mm. I, I know it's, I know. No, Flair's been great. Lately. Yo, I've been praising Flair yeah. and uh, good I on them. I really hard not to put just a bunch of Flair articles in this month's newsletter. I, it's yeah. Patrons. Uh, we don't say that about Chatelaine, do we? There's. Uh, okay. <laughs> I, I take digs at them because it's fun. Um, so f- in this Flair article, it says on Lemonade, Beyonce recounted her husband's long-rumored infidelity and the betrayal she felt, but she ultimately chose to remain his ride-or-die chick, both uh, orally and in real life. She was largely praised for it, both within and outside the black community. 444, on the other hand, seemed designed to frame Jay-Z's indiscretions as growth, while with his wife's feelings... As collateral mm. and it only scratched the surface of some of the ways toxic masculinity particularly in the black community influenced his infidelity and I think I think that is a perfect explanation there is a hyper masculinity in um, black cultures um, Latin cultures that kind of thing given the history of Jim Crow in the mm. United States um, the hyper-masculinity comes as a result of being emasculated all that time. I think that's part right. of it. Yeah. However, the victims of that are black women. Mm. 
or brown women. Um, we talked about Juno Diaz, for example, is, is a good example of how that hypermasculinity um, hurt. It's not just hurting feelings. It's actually hurting somebody's trajectory in life mm -hmm. because it opens you up to, um, to abuse. I think of Cardi B, for example, and Offset from Migos, wow. his infidelity, mm -hmm. and how she was like, well, that's just the way the game is. I think about T.I. and his mm -hmm. wife from, uh, what's her name, uh, Teeny, Tiny, whatever, um, and his infidelity, and the way he humiliated her yeah. through that infidelity because don't don't forget these women are being humiliated mm -hmm. on a national level mm -hmm. on a worldwide level right and you know she, her reaction well that's just the way the game is it's this resignation to being the collateral the damage to make your man better because also black women are taught to support their men yeah. that it's our culture mm -hmm. right it's so way more than white culture mm -hmm. you know so i think i think it is toxic and yeah i i totally agree i i took up a lot of that sorry oh that's okay i uh second everything you said <laughs> and have nothing to add <laughs> Um, I mean, I, I'm you know, I have already thought about this art. I really was curious to hear what you had to say. And I learned something. Yeah. Like, um, yeah, the ride or die chick anthem really has to end. It mm -hmm. really, it has to end quickly and swiftly. Mm -hmm. And, um, black women needs to, need to start being like, well, what's our support mm -hmm. motherfucker. Yeah. And this is the whole thing. I think that this is where the intersections of feminism diverge. Mm -hmm. So for example, I was, um, so uh, somebody sent me something on, you know, I, you know those BuzzFeed like videos? I don't think it was BuzzFeed, right. but you know, those social videos, they're one right. minute, they, they talk about an issue. Mm -hmm. There was this woman on there saying, well, I don't want the door held open for me I can open my own door I'm like bitch sit the fuck down yeah, and yeah. I this I don't is think you can say that for other people I don't think and and that's my feminism I'm like you know what shut up yeah. and the reason is is because there are women who would love that yeah would love that that yeah. that show of kindness because they don't get it mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. And the, it comes, and you have to be from a privileged position where men are just are just falling over themselves to open doors for you. That you, and it's a beauty privilege, and it's a white skin mm -hmm. privilege. Mm -hmm. That men are are rushing to your aid, but you don't need that because you can do it yourself. Well, there's some women who've been doing it themselves, yeah, exactly, and yeah. want and want that touch of kindness. Yeah want that touch of positivity so i don't i i hate that i hate that well i can pay for my own meals that's nice we know okay i get it yeah however you know there there is um there is there are other experiences out there that might want that mm -hmm. it doesn't make them less feminist yeah also if that's your definition of feminism i mean that's pretty simple and sad yeah it's very sad <laughs> 
black women are used to being the maids, the mules, the mammies. Do that for our men. We do that for um, the larger society. Um, the the entire like southern race, like white race in the south, was raised by black women. So that's the role we're used to working. We're used to putting out for people, and it's about time, I think. And this is happening now with. I love the younger generation in this sense mm. because they get that. Like there's there's this generation of black women, and I think part of it's my generation too, is that is that they get that and they're getting and they're trying to change it. And I see these discussions on Twitter and they make me giddy. My rent and receipts is about I'm gonna take you guys to the UK and we're gonna talk about Theresa May and the Windrush generation. And basically how she tried to fuck them over. Hmm. So ter- Prime Minister Theresa May has been accused of a cover-up after refusing to release internal home office documents on Windrush migrants. The group comprised, comprises British citizens who came to the UK from the Commonwealth as children following the Second World War and whose rights were guaranteed in the Immigration Act of 1971. So I'm I'm assuming that that's the act that legitimized mm-hmm. their their um, yeah. citizenship. Okay, name the Windrush generation after the British ship, the Empire Windrush, which arrived at Tilbury Docks in Essex with 492 Caribbean passengers in 1948. Many have made the UK their home for their entire lives. However, under new immigration laws, these people were forced to prove continuous residence in the UK since 1973, something that turned out to be almost impossible for those who had not kept up detailed records. As a result, some were denied access to state health care, made redundant from their jobs, and even threatened with deportation. The problem follows the ending of a previous Commonwealth citizenship and free movement when status was conferred by law on people to safeguard them, but some did not acquire the necessary papers. This lack of papers was then exacerbated by May's hostile environment policy under which landlords, hospitals, businesses, and civil society have been forced to proactively prove that their employees, tenants, and service users have the right to be in the United Kingdom. The new policy was introduced to achieve the government's lower migration targets by making living in the UK so unbearable that immigrants will decide to leave on their own accord. Holy shit. Yep. Well, well, following this, so following this, this, shitstorm mm-hmm. um, the home office secretary Amber Rudd had to resign mm-hmm. she's been replaced by a man of South Asian origin mm-hmm. which reminds me of last week and when we talked about or last week or two weeks ago when we talked about women and, and men of and people of color stepping in when shit hits the fan mm-hmm. and expecting to clean it up that, that reminded me of that so, and Theresa May, so they've now been granted full citizenship and full rights, but that didn't happen 
because the government thought it was a good idea. It happened because it was an, an international shitstorm mm -hmm. in the fact that Caribbean um, dignitaries and heads of state called her out on it. So it, it became um, a, a, a diplomatic nightmare mm -hmm. is basically what happened. It's really tragic. I'm just looking at some of the stories that have emerged to this. There's a man named Junior Green who uh, was not allowed to return to the UK for his mother's funeral, even though he lived in the UK for over 60 years. Yeah. That's just so sad. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I. Theresa, Theresa May is such a troubling uh, personality. Um, and it's, it's only going to get worse, this sort of nationalistic idea and uh, trying to just, whether it's lowering these migra migrant numbers and, and uh, by any means necessary, yeah. I mean, it's only, it's only going to, you know, push people into further fringes, not being able to access public services, can't be good for the society in general, it's certainly not humane. Um, it's not good for the fabric of society mm -hmm. either. It's not good for the act of citizenry. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it is, if you feel alienated, you, well, we all know what happens when you feel alienated from, you know, from society and then from further from the country, the only country you basically know. Right. It's not a good recipe. Theresa May is a damn fool for this. Um, and uh, I, I, she, like, there's a callousness that I don't appreciate that seems to be reverberate through every, like, party on the right. Yeah. You know? Um, in terms of, it reminds me of Mitt Romney's self-select deportation comments in mm. the 20... 12 election mm. um, well we'll just make it so hard for them that they just want to go home and so, so the role of government now is to make sure that people's lives are so shitty that they want to leave like think about that mm -hmm. yeah. to me that it may not be a constitutional crisis but it's a crisis I, I think it may may have uh, other other legal implications, but definitely it's it's yeah it's a huge humanitarian problem. It's a huge ethical problem, um, and I don't think that it's going to pay off for Theresa May to have that sort of as you say that that tear in the social fabric, that social dislocation of so many members of society on whom many people depend, uh, on whom industry and and you know. The economy depends on on them which is a shitty thing to say but for Theresa May that matters so politically from even her own standpoint to, to create such an untenable situation for people to work and to contribute I don't think is going to have the uh, the political payoff or certainly not the economic payoff she's looking for um, but yeah I mean, it, it's it, a huge disruption yeah and it almost never has a, has an economic payoff no I don't know what the economic payoff is one might say well well, then people who are citizens can get jobs. They could have gotten the job if they wanted it. Like, come on. I have this I have this conversation all the time. Like, not all the time, but... Yeah, but it's a common... It's a, a common, common refrain. refrain. <laughs> Thanks. 
uh, okay. Um, but like, yeah, I, I like, for example, um, various agricultural industries are suffering right now because they have a labor shortage. Mm-hmm. Well, they have a labor shortage because ICE keeps, you know, um, keeps snatching people and putting yeah. them in detention yeah. centers yeah. to deport them. Mm-hmm. And they are snatching up an industry's labor. Yeah. And so, so you know, the, ref- the, the reasoning is, well, now Americans can work. Really? Americans are working in the agricultural... They're picking strawberries, are they? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Show me where that's true. You know? So, <clears throat> I... I this is what always bothers me about like conservative governments. They're callous as fuck. Mm-hmm. And they don't understand that the human cost will eventually bring an economic cost if, if, if it hasn't already. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's just devastating that this is something, as we pointed out, is permeating in, in so many other countries. It's this conversation um, on the right and around sort of right-wing populism, um, scare tactics around migrants are, are really um, troubling, even though especially in the UK, I, I don't understand how that's such a salient argument when so they've had such a like active migration for so long from so many parts of the world. And so many like aspects certainly of urban UK life is influenced by immigrant culture, like immigrant communities if, and cultures. Oh. It's like yeah. like for sure, and it's like what would what would a modern British identity be but for these communities? Like I find that really um, infuriating and um, I like, just ignorant. I agree with you because if you look at the Commonwealth, mm-hmm. the Commonwealth encouraged free movement of labor. Mm-hmm. It, it it encouraged no, it was migration. At some point, it was a point of pride for for the UK. Yeah. And so to say somehow that these people are sucking up resources, they, uh, yeah, and this is the other thing. This is what really, huge mess. they're creating, they are, businesses, they're creating communities, they're creating, um, uh, uh, like whole lives and, and many generations of consumers, second, like second and first generation immigrants who are being, you know, educated in those, like, it just, it's just so ignorant to say that there's, there's not a, not a sufficient contribution. Um, Caribbeans built that fucking country, okay? Yeah. Caribbeans, Southeast Asians mm-hmm. built Britain. Mm-hmm. Britain would be nothing. Britain, Britain can't even compete with California, okay, at this point. Um, California just passed the UK as the fifth largest economy in the world. Oh, wow. Yeah. So... Like Britain would be nothing without the Britain wouldn't even have fucking sugar without the you know without the Caribbean. Okay, much less Britain wouldn't have shit all without the Caribbean. Britain wouldn't have shit all without Southeast Asia. So they can fuck themselves as far as I'm concerned (laughs) because these people seem to be selective in their his their history. Absolutely, Absolutely, like fuck you, just like the Mexicans built southern fucking america yeah. the fuck out of here yeah. i'm so well, pissed can't, off you can't pick and choose the contributions you you like or you don't like. like from from migrant communities or either 
part of part of the community or they're not they are we should live in a borderless society i'm here by the way i am here for it (laughs) i am for the free movement of labor and capital yeah i really am people to live yeah i'm here for free movement yeah 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 i'm that radical bitch Mm -hmm. yeah yeah all right so so there we go that's our show that's our pod today uh aaron will be back next week We'll have that Hamilton conversation with her. (laughs) All men are grievances. I want to know everywhere she ate. Exactly. Everything. Everything. I feel like I was there. Other than piss. Oh my gosh! Exactly. So that's it for today's Bad and Bitchy podcast. Catch us on social media, on Twitter at Bad and Bitchy, on Facebook forward slash Bad and B podcast. On Instagram, Bad and Bitchy Pod, or email us love notes. Email us questions. We love questions. We love answering your questions. Bad and B Pod at gmail.com. Bye! Bye.